What is crack and Hardware Knox listeners? I am Dan Valley coming at you without my co-host Adam Frommel today. I am, however, excited to be speaking with one of my favorite writers of all time, Katie Heindel, who has been published pretty much everywhere and anywhere that you can think of. Um, she has her own basketball newsletter, Basketball Feelings. Be sure to subscribe to that, basketballfeelings.substack.com. Or just follow her on Twitter at whatevs, W-T-E-V-S. She is also a co-host for the Dishes and Dimes podcast and the uh, basketball podcast. Like I said, she's been published all over the place. Um, Dime Up Rocks is currently her main home, but she also has bylines at Basketball News, wrote for the Raptors themselves, Yahoo Sports, Rolling Stone, Complex, all those great places. She's a fantastic writer, really knows how to evoke emotion and get into the deeper, tougher moralistic topics of the NBA. And we talk a lot about that. She published this contact tracing series about a month ago for Dime Up Rocks. And I really wanted to get into it because it covered sort of three different areas of what's been going on with this NBA season, trying to put it in perspective. The links to those articles, by the way, are in the description. So be sure to check them out. We also get into some Raptors talk. Before I speak with her, though, and we already pushed this podcast back a few days because of some breaking news. We had more breaking news, the most unfortunate of breaking news. Jamal Murray uh, suffered a torn ACL in his left knee. He will miss the uh, the rest of this season. Because of the timing of it, we're in a middle of April right now. The NBA is hoping to get back to a normal schedule next year. A 12-month recovery time would put him out for most of, if not all, of next season. And that's just... It's a, it's a fucking shame. There's no other way to put it. He is only 24. ACL injuries are not what they used to be. Guys can come back. They can perform at a high level. But just looking at the type of season he had after kind of, you know, rough like 10 or 15 so games start to the season, he's just been absolutely fantastic for them. And he is so integral to what the Nuggets do. And the the bigger picture here this season and next beyond, it's, it's, it's hazy now due to this injury uh, the first and foremost the chief concern is just that hopefully he gets better Jamal Murray already posted on Instagram tweeted three emojis that's what we do now and it seems like he's in you know at least good spirits but this is just you know he's a tough guy too and I think everyone knew that when they saw him sort of writhing on the floor in pain against the Warriors they they knew it was bad you were hoping it wasn't the worst case scenario and a torn ACL is no longer the worst case scenario but it's still pretty bad just having the stories about this guy, if you look at the, there was the ESPN piece from Jackie McMullen, I think two years ago at this point, it was a while ago, just about the training he went through with, with his dad. You should check that out. The The anecdotes that get called from that are, they should be the stuff of legend, but it seems that they're actually true. And so it just, it sucks on a human level to see players go through this. You don't know if it could have been prevented. I saw people saying that Mike Malone shouldn't have had him in the game at that point because the Warriors were already in front by enough. And like that, that really doesn't seem like a, a thing. It shouldn't have. It shouldn't have been a thing. It's, it's not even really worth discussing. Uh, the it feels like there have been more injuries this season. I don't think that's been statistically proven, and that's something that Katie and I actually talk about later in the podcast. I think Jeff Stotts um, from in, in Street Clothes says that they're not technically up, so we don't need to attribute it to this schedule. Although I doubt that something like that could, could have helped. And we've seen Mark Cuban and Luka Doncic now come out and against the play in tournament amid this truncated schedule. Uh, the quickly on that, the, the play in tournament is whether you like it, it is fine. If you dis if you dislike it and have an argument against it, 
whatever. That's like not the argument to make. It's this season in general. If you have a problem with those extra two or three games of the play-in tournament, it's because that you're truncating these 72 games into such a small period of time, and that's taking the um, prevailing wear and tear on these players' bodies. But on the Jamal Murray front, I, I hope he gets back to, to where he was, knowing just the type of worker that he is. I fully believe that he'll come back and play at an all-star caliber level. What this means for the Nuggets immediately is incredibly difficult. I They still have Nikola Jokic, can power the offense pretty much on, on his own, but they lose just so many elements in Jamal Murray's game that they can't re- come close to replacing in one player. His, you know, there's the, the maybe the biggest thing that they're just not going to replace is his synergy with Nikola Jokic. They're in year five together of their partnership which at this point is more like a kinship. Uh, they are, and I wrote about this, they're, they're hardwired to act in concert at this point. They torch defenses with their handoffs. The best defenses are going to suffer death by a thousand back cuts. And while Jokic knows where everyone on the floor is at all times, he sees more acutely aware of Murray's whereabouts than most. And it's not just knowing where Murray might be at a moment. He intuits where he's going. And Murray, in turn, has a unique, grasp of where Jokic wants him to be there's like this telepathic knowledge where Jokic can sense that Murray's in the corner when he's in traffic and just knows to to throw it there you can see some of this unfolding in real time where there's like almost a discourse maybe it's silent there are hand gestures when they're communicating on offense on other occasions there's no pointing no nodding no calls to the ball no visceral form of communication Um, Murray just does it it being whatever the right decision might be, whether that's cutting, relocating away from the ball, coming to the ball, et cetera. It's, it's really something that's amazing to watch. Watching those two is basketball at its most fun. And this just says nothing of their his skill set detached from, from Jokic. You could point to the solo minutes for Denver this season with either one of their stars on the floor, and they have not been great. I think there's a lot of early season noise in that. Some of the bench-heavy units definitely blow that up a little bit. It might also just be more of a harbinger of how much Denver prefers them together. Uh, but just looking at what um, Murray can do, he is by far Denver's best off-the-dribble scorer, or that's the, the person that they're going to trust the most to do that. He is taking 9.5 pull-up shot attempts per game this season. The next closest player on the team is Aaron Gordon right now at 3.5. And then if you're looking for a mainstay, Will Barton at 3.1. Jamal Murray's hitting 39.1% of his off-the-dribble threes this year, by the way. among There are only four players who are taking as many of these threes per game. That's four. And hitting at least 39% of those off-the-dribble threes. You have Jamal Murray. You have D'Angelo Russell in a limited sample. Still, he played 25 games. Stephen Curry and Mike Conley. That's pretty good company to be in. Um, the other thing that I think we're you're going to notice is that so much of the offense can run through Jokic and he's great at finding people. And if you can play off him, that's definitely a luxury. That element, that element will sort of remain, but I would argue, and I actually did argue this in an article for Bleacher Report that, you know, looking at how the nets have been so banged up and even LeBron and Anthony Davis missing so much time uh, simultaneously, but also separately, the Murray Jokic partnership was probably the best one, two punch in the league this season. You, you see it in crunch time. They're both, you know, pretty efficient there. Uh, and Murray is the, by usage rate, the second most relied upon player in, in the clutch. And while Jokic has shown that he's going to get you a from scratch bucket, and that's why he's so unique as a big in those situations, is you don't need to necessarily just defer to Murray. They do lose that element of their offense in crunch time. And look, Murray's slashing, <laughs> his, his, 
His shooting slashes are just absurd in, in a clutch this season. 51, 57, and 100. He's 15 of 15 at the foul line. So, you know, and Jokic has been great too. He's hitting a monster percentage of his twos, not so much of his threes. 18 of 21 at the foul line, 80, 85.7%. Has 17 um, assists in, in crunch time as well over the course of a 111 minutes in the clutch. You go. You can go to Michael Porter Jr. there, but here's the other thing. I've I've talked about how Michael Porter Jr.'s concession at this point is his role, where he probably definitely wants more control over the offense and and can take it and wants more of those from scratch looks. It's just not something that he's necessarily, or it, I don't even need to use the hedge qualifier. There's just not something that he's done. Um, Jamal Murray, among all Nuggets. Uh, rotation players let's call them just you know i'm not gonna throw shaq harrison into this just because so much of his data is non-nuggets data but 58.2 percent of his baskets are made baskets are going unassisted that's for a go-to score that's relatively low and that, that speaks to how the nuggets play it's also the highest on the team by a mile monte morris is in second place 47.9 percent of his made baskets go unassisted Jokic is third at 42.7 percent and then this gets me to Michael Porter Jr. to this point. Again, this is a function of how the Nuggets want to use him, and it's probably been an adjustment on his part. But 80% of his baskets are coming on assists. And so if you're going to turn to him to be that from-scratch scorer, you can envision it. Someone who's 6'10", can handle the ball, and shoot over the top of anybody, and has just been leaf lethal this season on offense. You can envision it happening, but if you're going to saddle him with more volume, you have to get ready for growing pains, and that's tough to navigate when you're trying to win a championship you do have monte morris to replace some of the playmaking i don't think mpj is going to give you much if, if any of that you also have Acuno Composo to do that neither of those two are just you know monte morris is going to be he's a better defender than murray probably murray still murray is still improved on that end let's you know let's go like two seasons the past two seasons he's been he's been all right on defense and i think in the bubble was probably the best defense i've ever seen him play just super physical and you're, you know, you're still losing that. I would think by the time maybe you listen to this, the Nuggets were already interested in Austin Rivers. They should just go out and sign him. I think he gives you some of the, the defensive positionality where he can guard one through three as opposed to just being able to do ones and twos like Murray. Uh, don't, I wouldn't call him a better defender than Murray, but just someone else who can handle the ball has shown that he can hit pull-up threes in the past, though his numbers sort of fell off a cliff after a fairly good streak with the Knicks at the beginning of the season. He ultimately fell out of the rotation while he was struggling. Uh, that just seems like a no-brainer fit at this point. Aaron Gordon has improved as a passer a great deal, and you can look at the past two seasons, um, You know, last year, all of which he spent with Orlando, and then most of this season so far in Orlando. I think the thing there, and this would hold true for probably anybody, uh, is just Murray's threat off the dribble. It will change the way that teams are going to guard you if there is someone else trying to facilitate the offense. And even... You know, Monte Morris and Facundo Composite, we're going to be able to do it in a more traditional way. That's not necessarily Aaron Gordon's game. And he's shot overall better than normal from three-point range this year. But he's still not that wing-type, guard-type score where you necessarily get too scared of him going downhill. And so he's more of a... I think when you look back at look back at his Orlando film and a lot of the stuff, you know, he threw some standstill passes. He threw some assists coming out of the pick-and-roll, but he's... He, did a lot of stuff just outside of the post. And yeah, you can, you know, you're set up to do that because you run stuff with Jokic. And if you want to stagger their minutes more, but you're losing that North South playmaking element that you're not going to, it's not going to be replaced in full for Monte Morris. 
or for Kudlin Campazzo or Austin Rivers. That's not necessarily Jokic's game, and how much more can you ask this guy to do? He's easily... I've received a lot of shit from Nuggets Twitter on this that I'm not convinced that he is just the far away MVP. Uh, he's definitely in my top two right now, uh, and so there's a chance he there's a chance he might be one without Murray if the Nuggets continue to excel. Yeah, that's going to bolster his case too. And I'm not trying to look at Murray's injury through that lens. Uh, Jokic is a deserving MVP either way. It's just how much more you're going to ask him to do with without Murray, and so. You know, now you're you're losing that pick and roll ability, and Murray was in the 78th percentile of pick and roll scoring efficiency this year, and isn't always the most accurate shooter. But you've looked at this guy hit such difficult shots in crunch time, late in the shot clock. You're just you're losing that bailout option. That's a really big deal. And you know, Jokic has great chemistry with with Will Barton, with Michael Porter Jr. It's just different with Jamal Murray, and the, like losing that connection for your team, it's something that's going to be very difficult, if not impossible. To overcome what I think this means for Denver when you're looking at the title race I would still put them in the top five of the Western Conference to be honest maybe you can make a case for Dallas or, or Portland over them I'll listen to it I probably won't agree with it Portland would come closest to me but you probably have to slingshot them down to to fifth place in the conversation where you have Utah the Clippers the Lakers and, and the Phoenix Suns in that discussion the Nuggets are probably fifth I wouldn't say all hope is lost, but the path to get out of the West just got a lot more difficult. And I also hate to look at it moving into next season, but if he's not going to play, they're still really talented and maybe they're willing to spend, um, you know, the, the mini mid-level exception and you can pick up a, a nice ball handler or playmaker that helps spell his absence. It's, it just sucks because you have Michael Porter Jr. who is, I don't make, we, I'll just make this clear with the usual disclaimer. I'm not worried about the team affording to keep this core together, but the reality is, is that they were going to make a decision based off this playoff run and the next one, probably because you have Michael Porter Jr. who's extension eligible this summer. And then both he and Aaron Gordon are straight, are slated, excuse me, for um, free agency. Michael Porter Jr. will be restricted free agent, but in, in 2022, uh, Will Barton, if he declines his player, if he picks up his player option, excuse me, he's also scheduled for free agent in 2022. I think he's a $14.9 million player option this season. I, I feel like he should probably decline that, by the way. It just feels like he could probably get similar annual money over a longer term. So that's just something else that then they have to figure out. If he ups their timeline in that sense, I don't think they can afford to lose him because he's someone who's going to give you that secondary playmaking too. I would argue uh, Michael Porter Jr., Monte Morris, and... Will Barton are probably the three most important nuggets who are impacted by Jamal Murray's absence. Maybe you put Fukuno Campazzo in there. Maybe you just assume that Jokic needs to be put up there a little bit. Maybe you really think that they're going to start milking Aaron Gordon's improved ball skills. I don't know, but that's just the, you know, without seeing, having seen Denver play a game without Jamal Murray, that, that would just be my read on the situation. We'll do a deeper dive into this moving forward. To end this, though, you look ahead to next season and now there's a chance that you lose that second playoff run to evaluate this core. And that just becomes really problematic because it might be that, you know, you want to keep Gordon. Michael Porter Jr. is, you know, if he keeps playing like this or if he plays even better in Murray's absence, that's going to be a quick negotiation, whether it's in restricted free agency or extension talks. That'll be a max money player. And so just what do you do? You have Paul Millsap hitting free agency this summer, but just looking at the four-player core of Gordon, Murray, Michael Porter Jr., and Jokic, I think any let's throw Will Barton into there. That five player court was, hey, we probably have the next two postseasons we know to 
with at least four of these guys, depending on what happens with Barton's player option, which was 14.7 million. So I was off by 200 K. Now you've, you've lost that. You know, these players are good, but how well do they fit? You just don't, you don't have that sample size now. And what happens next year? You know, if, you know, maybe Murray comes back just before the playoffs, how much can you base on what happens there? Are the Nuggets less likely to extend Michael Porter Jr. now or more likely because they want to build up that that goodwill? They're just tough long-term decisions they have to make, and you can argue that two of their next title pushes are are compromised by this. I'm not ready to write them off. This team is still... Nicole Jokic only just turned 26, by the way, too. As people have noted, it's Aaron Gordon feels like he's been around forever. He is still only 25, and Michael Porter Jr., is what is he's got to be 21 i'm actually gonna double check that because i don't want to misspeak on porter jr's age weird that i don't know that off the top of my head it's like this core is still really young and they have you know they they can wait this out he's 22 michael porter jr so so he'll turn 23 in in june you have just so many of these guys on the right side of of 27 they'll be fine long term if they want to keep everybody around but this was a team that i think you could have legitimately said they were either the favorite to come out of the West, or if you're like me, that has kind of been, unless you can tell me LeBron and AD won't be healthy, because we can use the disclaimer of, oh, a full-strength Lakers are going to steamroll everybody, as my co-host likes to poke fun at me when I say that. So unless you're going to tell me that LeBron and AD won't be on the court for the Lakers, I'm just going to assume that they have the best chance to come out. I, I need to see it to believe it at this point, I think. And af- after that, it was wide open to begin with. I have the Suns there. It was by the narrowest of margins with the Nuggets. They could have been right there with Murray, if not there. And they certainly move out of that place right now. And this team was close. They made that all-in play for Aaron Gordon, and it's maybe a semi-all-in play. They gave up real assets to get him in RJ Hampton and the pick. Um, They they compromised the guard defense a little bit by giving up Gary Harris, even though he's been in a rut for on offense for what feels like eternity. So it's... This is tough, and it it sucks. And I'm I'm most I feel most for Jamal Murray. I I assume that he will be fine. I expect him to be fine long term. It's going to be I don't want to say intriguing or interesting because I think in the back of my head at least that you're just going to know like we're missing out on this really special player amplifying a core that just made so much fucking sense at this point where this Western Conference playoff race, you know, the slog of this season, the the. The the moral dilemma behind it of so many games coming at you so fast amid what is still a pandemic and, and seeing could there be a rise in soft tissue injuries again we're going to get to that very shortly it's it's just knowing that this is what happened to this core where you're never going to see or not never but you're not going to see the peak of the Nuggets at least this season and again probably not next season it just sucks and so here's to Jamal Murray, Jamal Murray making a full recovery i think the western conference playoffs will still be super interesting the nuggets will be in the thick of it we'll see what kind of unfolds from here but look let's get to talking a lot of stuff interesting stuff with katie heindel just one of the best in the business follow her on twitter again at whatevs w-t-e-v-s i really hope you enjoy this conversation i hope you check out the the full breadth of it because we cover a lot of what i think are really important topics um and that contact tracing piece which is absolutely spectacular and you should absolutely be sticking around for the the raptors and kyle lowry talk after this she is based out of uh toronto i believe so she has an intimate knowledge of the team there and they're headed in this really they've reached a pivot point they kept kyle lowry at the trade deadline but that just it hasn't necessarily simplified their future again hope you enjoy this and here we go 
Katie, thank you so much for coming on the Hardwood Knox podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Uh, I'm doing all right. Wading through the local confusion um, around uh, vaccines in, in Canada, but uh, I'm hanging in. <laughs> thank you yeah, for having me. It's been such a loaded question to ask that at the beginning of every podcast. For it's How do you phrase it other than well, how do you been relative to the world yeah. voting <laughs> the past like 15 months or whatever it's been at this point? Um, so I brought you on for many things, but one of the things I really want to talk to you about, and it's been uh, almost a month at this point since you published the first part of the contact tracing series for Dime Uprocks. Uh, do I pronounce that correctly, by the way? I never get Uprocks right. Is that right? Yeah, you nailed Wait, it. <laughs> I've butchered it like eight times with a bunch of the Dime writers that have come on here. But anyway, um, it was a fantastic series, three parts, and it's been almost a month since you first published it. The one thing I wanted to ask you before getting into the different parts of it, and I think I'm kind of jumping to the end of it here, but how have you grappled with this season covering, consuming a league that has, for the most part, operated in opposition of your own and many others is moral compass? Mm-hmm. Um, it's been hard, honestly, like to be completely honest, like before I thought about writing those pieces, I felt kind of like I was at an arm's length, honestly, since the season started. Um, just like watching the way, to me, I, I really do think the league did a 180 from especially what we saw in the bubble and the care um, and thoughtfulness that they they took in the restart um, and just like the measure of safety from that to this season uh, and just sort of steamrolling ahead and hoping that everything would work that that was like what it felt like you know and that didn't feel to me true to what the NBA has done like I don't know for a very long time for a league that kind of prides themselves on being so socially conscious and aware and like one step ahead of the curve um so it made it tough and I think another doubly thing that made it tough was like the well one to Toronto so I'm in Toronto I'm a Raptors fan and the Raptors were displaced, but the Raptors had their own kind of mess of things at the beginning of the season with the Terrence Davis assault uh, allegations and like the whole situation of them not cutting him and keeping him around. So I was really, I just kind of felt torn, honestly, between like the NBA and then the Raptors. I was just like, I don't know how I'm really going to like follow or the, how much I want to follow basketball this season. I think I felt that obviously I didn't have the Raptors connection that you did, but the, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I, it's, it's been a struggle because it feels hypocritical doing what I do, but I, you rationalize it for me. And this is very hypocritical, but it's like, this is how I make my living. Like I have, the league's going to go on, I'm going to cover it. But you kind of talked about that in your piece where it's just like, there's no, there's almost no culpability because there's so many different moving parts and people are deferring to everything else where it's like, well, if they're deciding to play, I'm going to cover it is the rationalization that I'm making it. And there's also the, the aspect of, well, this was, there, there should be concern for the players, but then people have also said, well, this was collectively bargained between the, the players union. Has that made it more difficult to grapple with? Or is that even the latter part very much an element of, you know, we need to get away from the, maybe not entirely, but we're kidding ourselves if the billionaires in all this don't have the leverage in those negotiations with the players union. It's tough. It's, it's definitely like, there's a lot of elements to it. Um, and I don't mean that as like a point of like shifting <laughs> my response and deflecting blame is the way I think the league has been able to, because of saying like, Oh, it, this comes down to the team or this comes down to the owners or the players agreed to it. I mean, obviously, yes, the players agreed to push forward, but you have to consider like with 
voices within like the players association? Like, does this come down? Like, what is just like, you know, a second year player <laughs> compared to like LeBron James think about it, you know? Like, I think there's like a lot of discrepancy there. I think, yeah, I think absolutely there was pressure from owners who, you know, when you look at revenues, and I touched on this in the last piece, which was mostly about revenue and ethics uh, of the NBA, but when you look at how much um, teams lost basically last season and the fact that they were mostly comfortable in losing it because going into this season, there was the promise, like, we're going to get back to, no to quote, normal 100%. In some cases, that's fans and arenas. So you are looking at increased revenues, not on par with what they were in the previous season, but much better than they were last season. And I think like when you, you just have to look at the pressure that those owners took in wanting things to return to for them to say like, yeah, this is like a very expensive asset. That's the way that I think a lot of them viewed their teams and like they have to get them back to work because they want the money to start rolling. And so, yeah, I do think there was a lot of pressure probably from all sides, but I think the league became quite adept at wielding that as just like these, all these moving parts they could kind of, that were shifting, that they could hide behind almost in real time because you can deflect blame and just say, you know, we want to do what's best for our teams. And if the teams decide this is what they're doing and best for their livelihood, we'll support them. But like, it ultimately comes down to the NBA. And I think, while I don't want to oversimplify it, I do think, and some of the what you also touched upon, I think in parts one and two of this piece was the league has presented itself as something ethically better or a higher authority when it comes to morality than these other sports leagues specifically, or just any business that you would um, consider. And so it's almost, and the, it's just a business excuse is something I'm going to ask you about later with Kyle Lowry, but uh, the, it's just a business slant. It seems to ring hollow when you are trying to, and I, again, I know it's complex, but it seems to ring hollow when you've tried to present yourself has that higher authority on it. And then to, you know, I don't, is it hide behind too strong a word to say where it's like with all-star uh, making the donations to HBCUs, you guys, they could have made those donations anyway. And as you pointed out, like the HBCUs did not ask for that donation. And, mm -hmm. um, and so that's the other thing I've tried to, to grapple with is that yes, there are these other leagues that did just go about their business, maybe a little bit more recklessly in the beginning, or just even overall compared to, to now or the, or the peak of this in the past. But if you're the NBA and one, as you also pointed out, is taking place indoors, um, unlike these other sports like baseball and football for the most part, uh, you, you have an obligation to be held to that higher standard if you want to be viewed as this progressive corporation. And I think this was another reminder that they're not at that point. And this goes back to the Hong Kong human rights issues. Mm -hmm. That was sort of another flashpoint moment for people who thought the NBA was on this pedestal when it came to these issues was they are going to default to we are a business when it, it really starts to impact their wallet. Yeah, you can afford to be progressive as long as the revenue keeps coming in in the way that you anticipate it to, right? And I think that's just like that, even like, you know, as people like you and I who like cover the NBA, we're not naive, we understand, we understand that part of it. But I guess it had not seemed so transparent to me in terms of like what the motives were of the league in that 180 from when you look at even the league's response, like this is what was so telling to me is like I covered and wrote a big story about their response to COVID in March and April last year and like the amount of money that they raised internally, all like the player driven initiatives that they were starting, like being a real public health advocate where that was lacking at the time with the Trump administration in the state. So like they took it upon themselves. And I do not think that was like virtue signaling or for optics. I think that was genuinely like, 
they were, we're a huge organization and we have a lot of weight and communication and money behind us. Like, what can we do? So to go from that to then just being like, you know, you've got players testing positive, like this was a bigger problem, I think in December and January, hopefully like, and I hope they have kind of stemmed it, but that stretch of time was so bleak and so dark and like moving the season up to December when, you know, the States were, I guess it's hard to keep track of the waves, but I think at that point it was the second wave of infection rates really, really rising and Adam Silver going ahead and like bumping up the season because probably it just felt like if they knew, they knew that if they waited another month, it would be ethically impossible optics and just like good conscience wise to continue ahead with the season, which was in effect, like continuing ahead with normalcy, like at all costs, the, what happened with all-star I felt like was such an almost like hijacking of HBCUs and like what they said, like, you know, when the mayor of Atlanta comes out and is like, we don't want you here, like, we don't want this event. That's very clear to me where this host city stands and that they weren't prepared for it. And then, you know, I think in, there were a lot of off the record conversations I didn't get to put in the story, but speaking with experts who have studied other leagues, um, especially for the injury story, and then who have kind of those people who've kind of pivoted to um, like covering COVID in, in other pro leagues, were very confused as to why the NBA, which was the league who started latest out of all the other major leagues, still didn't take any of the findings and learnings of the NFL, of MLB, and say like, uh, it didn't really work out so great for them. And the one thing they had going for them was like a lot of these are open air stadiums, but that they didn't take any of that information to heart seemingly and still carried on as if they were the kind of like, it was like a man on the moon situation. They were taking the first steps into that environment, you know, that no one before them had would like that wasn't at all the case. You, yeah. And it seems like there could have been, and I, I don't have a suggestion for it. It seems like there just could have been a better middle ground here that, you know, the season was still happening. Do you know what that middle ground looks like? Is it something even as like, even the, I don't want to say the literal things because this is important, but in, in part two, when you're talking about the soft tissue injuries um, you mentioned, and this, there's also the ESPN piece done on this, the, the COVID protocol compliance officers or whatever they were called. Mm-hmm. Like maybe can that be a separate position from the jump as opposed to lapping that on to trainers who are probably already overworked. And the quote that I think you singled out and was in that piece, uh, the ESPN piece was some of these, tra- one of the trainers said they haven't touched the player in like weeks or something. Yes. And so just, yeah. just <laughs> aspects like that feel like could have been easily addressed, but in the larger scheme of this, in talking with experts, was there, or even your, your own opinion, was there more of a middle ground for the NBA to straddle? Because I do think one of the responses to, um, and I share in all your sentiments, let's say our sentiments here would be, well, the se- you're, you're basically suggesting the season was going to be canceled and that's just never, was never going to happen. And, or it had to go back in the bubble. And as you mentioned, the players didn't want to be in the bubble. And there's also the counter argument that are players safer when they're actively playing in the NBA because they are being tested. And we saw how many positive tests came back when they returned to their markets from being out of market that was, you know, trying to come up with a middle ground personally, I couldn't figure out one because all that stuff is still swirling in my brain, thinking about, you know, the peak of this time in the December, January, like some of the more scarier parts of this whole thing. I mean, there's, I think it's so difficult to trace and probably for them to have made that decision or like 
not make a decision because there were so many middle grounds, right? Like you had for the injury specific thing, you had these guys ramping up performance um, from like nothing, basically from zero to a hundred in some cases, you had everyone, like every player at a different level, basically, because you had some guys who hadn't played since the season stopped in March. You had some guys who played an extremely long time, uh, like, you know, with the Lakers on the heat who probably had no downtime. And like both of those things affect, like I was, I kind of knew this passively, but in speaking with experts and doctors and like muscle, like, like tissue, like very like scientists that study like loading and tissue to such a specific degree that it was just like, they were all so nervous and so scared, but were also scared because they were kind of like, well, you know, the NBA has a lot of experts and they have a lot of doctors and we trust those doctors inherently, but the fact that they were all still pressing, like, be careful, like this is unprecedented. We have nothing like this. There's no, like, you know, bed rest studies, I think were the closest thing I found in speaking with doctors when like an athlete is, is confined to bed for like weeks at a time, months at a time. But that's the only thing. Um, that really compared. And so you kind of have the middle ground of that. You have the middle ground of like, of COVID. Um, when, like, when, when should they have started the season? When would it have been, have been safe? Like it technically never was safe. It's probably should never have happened. You have the mental health aspect of players saying, yeah, they didn't want to go back to a bubble situation. It wasn't tenable maybe for them in the long term. I assume it would have cost a lot of money. We know how much money the bubble cost the NBA. So, like the best suggestions I had come across were either like, and this was something I think was in play initially, like talks initially were to do division bubbles or like East-West bubbles, something right. like that. And I mean, at the end of the day, it still has been, there, there were a lot of injuries and there were a lot of like very serious cases of COVID that maybe we don't even know the severity of them. You know what I mean? Because like there are still players who haven't returned hundred percent and these are guys in like peak physical health, right? So it's like a very, they're kind of an anomaly in the general population in that sense. Um, but it, there were just so many, basically there was just so many overlapping terrible potentials. And I'm glad that nothing, nothing extremely bad touch wood has happened like out of those things, you know, like there are a lot of cases, there were a lot of cases, probably more than you'd want to see. There have been severe injuries this season potentially we don't know yet but potentially more than we would see in another season but like the middle ground of all of those things i guess that i kept coming back to is that the league just seemed to be crossing its fingers and like hoping you know like hoping for the best because if you were going to actually take action and try and figure out like another way of approaching things you either would have postponed which seemed to be the case at first, but then the season was bumped up, I think, due to revenue loss, like the projection, projection of revenue loss, or you do bubbles, or you just like figure out another way to, to proceed and continue. But I don't, I think once the league decided the season had to continue at all costs, they just sort of threw middle ground out the window. Was there, when you were doing and speaking with people for the part two focusing mm -hmm. on the, the injuries. I think the, and you said, we don't know for sure yet. The reflexive response even before uh, reading that would be injuries are going to increase. Was there anything though, that really surprised you and what you were finding? And you, you mentioned this already on the podcast end of the piece. What I never gave consideration to personally was there was this idea that look at how much time these players have spent away from the game in general, if they weren't in the bubble, I never gave thought to the aspect of their quality of off season or away time when you're looking at training and prep 
was also so much lower. So it's not just the ramp up after being away from NBA game speed. It's a ramp up from just lower quality prep in general. And so in theory, you would think that that severely heightens the risk of these injuries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's like you had some guys who it also depended where they lived, right. And what, what the state like laws were, you know, everyone was kind of scattered all across the country. And in some cases like their gyms, they couldn't go to the gym or they couldn't go to their like personal training facilities. They couldn't go to team facilities. And in some cases guys could. So it was just like a very unequal playing field in that sense from the start. Um, you have what I found and was reminded of when I was writing that story was that injuries have been just like steadily ticking up soft tissue injuries, like severe soft tissue injuries every season since like the nineties. And we know that because like pace has increased just like the way the game is played now is so different that inevitably there's going to have to be a breaking point. And unfortunately that breaking point just seems to be where are we, where do we all stand and, and what's an acceptable amount of, of injury per season. Like, I don't think there's like the freak injuries where if like someone kind of, you know, lands on their leg wrong and like they break a bone or something like those are things that, you know, and speaking to doctors, they're like, we can never account for those things. We can try and help them land better and kind of learn how to position themselves. But those freak accidents are always going to happen. But the soft tissue things are the things that they can guard against. And it was that specific shortened ramp up period that worried every doctor that I spoke to. And they were just like, you know, this is just going to get worse. Cause the NBA, unlike a lot of other leagues that see, which makes sense to me that like, you know, in, in the NFL, in the MLB, a lot of injuries increase in training, like in training camps. And then at the beginning of the season, as guys kind of get back into the swing of things basically, but with the NBA, it increases exponentially throughout the season. And that has to do with fatigue. There's obviously the problem in the NBA of like, guys don't really get a lot of sleep in the regular season. It's, it's enhanced incredibly in the postseason. You have all these factors like kind of compounding on the injury question. Um, so what I found, I guess what was the, the most surprising thing was this seeing it happen. So uh, ex like accelerated this season because of, because of the time constraints at the beginning of the season, because of the pandemic, this was just something that existed already, but my fear was like, is this like the, the worst breaking point that we're going to see? And it seemed like that at the beginning of the season, luckily things seem to have cooled off, but like, it's going to be a very weird postseason. Most teams rosters are incredibly thin. Like there aren't, I could think of maybe like four deep ish teams, you know, that like might have guys to sort of pad out the roster just for the sake of continuing play. So I guess at some point, you're looking at like, what is the cost of this season in seasons to come, right? Whether that's guys like physical health and injuries, whether that's guys physical health with COVID and the pandemic and how that's going to affect their livelihoods going forward in their careers and their personal lives. Um, and like, that's just something that I, I came back to in every piece was just like, it feels like such a stupid risk to like rush ahead with this season for when you look at the longevity of like, what, what, like, what's the end goal here? And that's part of the most terrifying thing. And, and some of that might just be beyond the NBA's control, uh, mm -hmm. but as things improve with the pandemic and hopefully they continue to improve in the U S and just, you know, in Canada, obviously, and then just across the globe, but what are the long-term effects of having had COVID and what if your case was particularly more severe because players have said, you know, there are the earlier season examples where we looked at Russell Westbrook's performance or, you know, a lot of guys on the Wizards, Davis Bertans, and I don't know if either of them said anything openly about it, but 
it just seemed something wasn't right. And we know that they had COVID. And I think was a Fred Van Fleet recently came out Mm -hmm. uh, and said like, he still had trouble getting up and down the floor at points. And is this something that's going to spill over to next season and just, just beyond because there, we haven't been far enough removed. Like this hasn't, this still hasn't been a long-term thing. It feels simultaneously like we've lived through, you know, the time has sped up and this has also lasted like two decades or something, but we don't, we just don't know what the potentially lingering or long-term effects of this are. And that's, you know, to think about, are are we going to give that enough consideration leading into next season where if something happens with a player or if they're, if they look winded or don't have the same stamina, or if they're just not the same version of themselves, like, is that going to be considered when evaluating these players or just the sport in general? Yeah. And I would hope so, but I don't think it will be because you look at like the average NBA career is such a short window anyway. Right. And guys really need to capitalize on that time. Unfortunately, like the whole machine of it feels so cannibalistic at times. And, and then it, it feels even more so when you add these kinds of elements into it, like you're right about Fred Van Vliet. I think Pascal Siakam also, like they said, basically all the players for know that we're kind of hitting that what they called conditioning wall at the same time, which that was the first I'd heard of like multiple guys on the same team who you could kind of trace to like being infected around the same time coming back and it affecting their play in a really in like the similar way. That was interesting to me because again, as you said, like this data is so dynamic, like it changes every day. We haven't, it hasn't existed for long enough to like have these kinds of case studies yet. So I think retrospectively, like we'll look back at the season and we'll be able to trace those things. But like Jason Tatum said the same thing, like he felt super wounded when he came back. He's extremely, he's a very young player, you know, like all these, I mean, all these guys are young. And as we said before, they're in like peak physical health. And like, these are things that are, these are like the anomalies of COVID that you don't know how they'll affect like individual to individual. You don't know like what the long-term effects of that can be, whether that's on someone's lungs, they're, they're like, um, cardiovascular system, even like their brain chemistry. You know, I think the saddest example was like, and something I didn't even know because I hadn't seen it as widely written about or talked about as I would have hoped. But like when, like with Mobamba, the fact that he got sick last spring and there was still as of like a month ago, no timetable for his like regular return to play, you know, like, yes, of course we hope those are anomaly cases, but like when you think about them being anomalies, like they're still someone's life and it's still their career and their livelihood. So like, how do you fit that into like contract negotiations? Like, I don't know. Like, I wonder if the MBPA has considered that uh, going forward, because I wouldn't be surprised if like, that's going to be the case with more players. Yeah. And Fred Van, like, let's say Fred Van Fleet was hitting free agency this summer as, mm-hmm. this offseason, as opposed to last offseason after he had COVID, he still could be playing well. Like, is that going, would that have factored into the way the Raptors or other teams would have pursued him, which is just, you know, that just seems like blatantly unfair. And so that's something. Yeah. (laughs) And I don't think that's been given enough like coverage. I know people have thought about it, but I, you hope there's going to be like something put in place, like you said, from the players union to at least prevent that from happening. But there are, you know, they're going to be, none of them spring to mind. That's not something I even gave consideration for. I hopped on with you, but there might just be instances of that this year and Mo Bamba just long-term, you know, he has his fourth seasons coming up after next year, at which point he hasn't proven really enough, but in normal circumstances, he would just be tantalizing to keep around or sign. Mm-hmm. Like, is that going to impact interest in him if he just doesn't ever look right? And, you know, is that because he's 
actually not a good, great, whatever you want to say, NBA player, or is it, you know, was he really held back by COVID? That's just such a, that's a minefield to navigate. Yeah. And it's like, not something you could ever know, right? Like you, you can't know now you could actually never know. Right. Unless like some, unless testing gets to some point, but this probably won't be for years where you could kind of look at performance in that capacity um, and like compare it against his peers. But it is, it's a very weird and, and kind of gross and terrible feeling to navigate, uh, especially when you look at the way that we talk, not you and I, but some people talk about players as like assets and like the inherent value of players and contracts and like that kind of language. Like I would just hope that this kind of slows that down because you can't, this like, that's kind of my one hope in writing the series and my one hope of this season as terrible as it has been in a lot of ways is that it makes sort of whether you're average fan or just anyone slow down and just like take a second look and think like, eh, like, was this necessary? Maybe, maybe not. I was actually really surprised to hear that like ratings are down across the board. Cause I don't think people really cared about basketball in the same way. It felt like a weird thing to be watching, but was it, and like, what's the long-term cost and like, what are the long-term effects and how are maybe we like a little bit complicit in that? You, ma- you made the segue for me and I know I'm working in reverse here from parts <laughs> three, two, and one. Uh, you covered empathy a lot in the, the first part of this. And I think that was my favorite um, of the three installments that you did. Was there, and I know you highlighted the exchange between, um, after the J- Jacob Blake shooting between Fred Van Fleet and um, Michael Grange, was that the flash bulb moment for you? Um, to sort of evaluate everything that was happening with the specifically the zoom and not being there on, on site to interview players or, or next to them, or was there other stuff leading up to that, that kind of informed uh, just that, you know, was there even a revelation revelatory moment or was this something that gradually came about to you that you started to notice and feel? Mm-hmm. There were little ticks like here and there. I definitely noticed like, I mean, I, I guess I quote know the Raptors a little bit better. And just in terms of like what it seems like they're, nuances are in interviews and they seem to be getting a little bit short and frustrated in certain aspects but then you know I like a lot of other writers could like hop in different team scrums in a way that I couldn't before um and yeah like I think it just takes like a a a small amount of empathy to be able to read someone in that situation but I noticed that just like shorter answers um or like media would be asking questions Cause you would have someone kind of pop in like late and then they'd ask a question that had already been asked because they weren't there to hear it. And no one was there to kind of like, sometimes in like social situations, you really undervalue what like someone's shooting you a look to basically be like you idiot or something, you know, like you don't get that over zoom from your peers, right. Um, in media. So like those kinds of situations were happening quite frequently. Questions were just getting bolder. I noticed it's just stuff that you were like, you wouldn't ask this to someone's face. I don't think. And if you did, you would be there and be able to read the room and maybe like, you know, make a joke before, just talk about something like unrelated, just in like the sort of like social exchange, the normalcy of like social exchange that was lost. So that all led to me thinking about it more. And then the exchange between uh, Fred and Michael Grange happened. And that, I mean, that was just like a particularly loaded exchange. It was like a really loaded 
uh, and difficult time. And I felt like players were getting asked again and again, just to kind of dredge up trauma and be like, how does this, you know, one of the questions I heard across the board asked in like any kind of different way was just like, well, how do you feel? It's like, how do you think these guys feel? You know, like, do you need to ask that if they want to talk about that? It's one thing, maybe they'll bring it up. But like, that was another loss of that situation is like in a normal situation, you could tell maybe if a guy started to talk about it, you could be like, well, like, do you want to talk about that at all? But you can really phrase that way on Zoom. So I think, unfortunately, that exchange kind of encapsulated the feeling for me, but it was just a real like, whoa, like we, we've hit like a different point um, in communication here. And it wasn't it probably wasn't a microcosm like it, it zoom fatigue is a real thing and does like affect our brains and like psychology in a way we're probably still learning about that's very scary but in the specific context of like sports media which can be at the best of times very um what's the word? like transactional yeah. you know uh it just intensified all of those things even more I've been asking people this and normally most of the time I'm at the response would be you're an idiot. That's not something that's going to happen, but I've actually been surprised at how many people don't know uh, who are closer to the league and, you know, cover the league more on site um, than I do. What elements of this are going to maybe stick long-term? Because I do think there's, there are some teams that are very open about their access. Um, having dealt for a couple of years exclusively with um, teams in New York, I can confirm that neither one of those teams is one of them. And I, there might, they might want to have that level of control over the access to their players. And it's easier to, yeah, you can allow more people in zoom, but it's also kind of like easier to, to moderate, or you're just ensuring those, um, Howard Beck calls it the side ambles or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Those aren't happening. And you, you know, maybe there's some writers you don't care about that, um, taking place with your players, but pre pre pregame locker room availabilities are when's media going to be fully back allowed or if allowed in the locker room do the post game sessions do those stick on zoom permanently have you given that any thought or do you see it as something some not all of it but maybe some of the the way that things are operating right now do you see any of that maybe sticking longer term post pandemic i've thought about it a lot um actually because i mean i miss one of the things i think that has been tough this season in covering basketball and like trying like finding intriguing features or like stories to write about player to player has been not having those kinds of side exchanges, you know, where you catch a guy just like uh, pre or post game. And you just like get to have like kind of an unrelated conversation or like, it's just like, it's just a more human exchange. And for me, that's kind of how, like, that's how I best like to write stories. Uh, and I feel like that will always kind of inspire me to write the next thing. So yes, very selfishly, I miss it for those reasons. I think some teams to your point, have probably enjoyed the limited access and the gatekeeping a little bit more. Um, Toronto can be a bit closed with, uh, with like access and availability outside of, you know, those kinds of opportunities you could create for yourself as media. Um, and I think what I was surprised about that was in the, in the bubble, I think in the bubble, a lot of um, people, team we don't have time to do like one-on-one -on -one phoners but it was surprising to me that that didn't really happen i had more of those over the summer like over the off season which was nice um but it's still quite different and i think that 
there's also the question of gatekeeping with like certain beat writers and larger outlets where like I've noticed this in different scrums, but like there's an order in which writers or reporters or media get called on and it doesn't always leave room enough for either bloggers or just like, you know, independent journalists to kind of ask their questions. So it is inherently limiting the way that things are set up now. I don't know when it would be, I could see it from a PR perspective to say like, when will it actually be safe? And what are the logistics? I guess like it would be vaccine passports in some yeah. cases, like showing like proof of, of showing that, like to get into a locker room again. Um, but I know like for media that's covered teams this year where media and fans have been allowed back, you know, they're either up in a gondola or kind of like seated somewhere else in the arena. And then they'll just have to watch the scrum on zoom, even though they're physically in the building. Yeah. Um, so I don't envy like PR teams trying to figure out the logistics of that. I think they're probably at this point, just trying to be safe and keep it as streamlined as possible. Um, I think players have gotten used to it to a degree, but I think players probably miss the interaction too. I mean, what, one of the more interesting things when I spoke to Suns PR was just how many of the players they said it just felt like they were looking in a mirror because that was at the beginning when it was just one-way video and they were just either looking at themselves or like a black screen and hearing this like disembodied voice ask them like a particularly bold question like that is a very weird thing to process you know like you can't just like hearing questions coming at you from the ether sort of so I I think they probably miss the exchange I mean maybe some of them don't maybe some of them are like I like this it's my order <laughs> and the availability is controlled yeah I mean the the aspect of not being able to attach a face in some instances like the I like we're podcasting right now audio but the video makes it easier to just interact so like mm -hmm. I can understand that the thing that I gave some consideration to at the beginning and I asked um you know, writers, bloggers, whatever you want to call them, that maybe wouldn't have normally been given access to mm -hmm. game credentials. This does feel like it's a way to help them um, be a part of that process. And the other thing, and as someone who punted on his on-site coverage a few years ago at this point, mostly because I feel like an intrusion upon everyone's lives. And so I'm just not cut out for the, like to go up to a player after the scrum. I'm also going to be too nervous um, in the middle of a scrum to ask a question, maybe that's not related to what other people are asking. And it took me a few years to just realize that I couldn't do that in talking with other people. And I'm not someone who's hopping on these post-game scrums right now. I want to make that clear, but there are other people that have felt more comfortable being able to ask questions in these settings. And I kind of like that em empowerment for them, but I also understand, and there's, you know, I also understand like what you're saying, where a lot of your inspiration is going to come from one of those one-on-one -on -one interactions. And I don't know if there's a middle ground to it and maybe, you know, is, are we at the point where it's like, Hey, if you can't handle doing the scrum or like the side ammo, like that's on you at this point, like that's the job. I honestly don't know. That seems a little too insensitive, but it does feel like um, it's less gatekeepy for certain media types, or at least more inviting for those who might not handle the um, you know, and you know, this it's, it's cutthroat. It's competitive when it comes to getting interviews and stuff with these players. So I do like that aspect of this does feel a little bit, or, you know, maybe even a, a ton of bit more inclusive. A little bit. Yeah. And I wonder how much of that could carry over. Right. Cause like you, you think on like maybe your average post game now, like for Toronto, say that's who I'm on with the most, there could be, there's like averaging around 25 to 30, which is more than you would right. see in person. And then if, if it's like a crazy game or like if it's a marquee game or if something happens, that number ticks up by about 20. 
as well because you've got other people from out of market kind of hopping in. So I am curious just for like local media in the case that you mentioned like bloggers or people who maybe hadn't been credentialed before and who this has been a great opportunity for, will that carry over? Like will team PR be like, well, we gave you access to this remote like experience. So what's to say like, you're not legit enough to come in person. Like that can't, you know what I mean? Like that wouldn't, I don't think that would hold much weight. So hopefully it carries over for those people, because I agree with you. I think it's like helped in some cases diminish the gatekeeping, but I am curious to see how things kind of, how things work when, if we can get back to it and what getting back to it is actually going to, going to look like. Yeah. Um, and that would be, that seems like the rational way to look at it. Like, okay, if you, you did this with us via zoom and it was fine, we can credential you. I, I doubt teams would operate in that. And then it's also, they have the built-in excuse of, well, so we're going to allow more people in here after the pandemic. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's but I also true. do think it's important to based off what the way some people write, or, if, you know, if you're going to criticize a player, which that's a part of the, just the media landscape, uh, I think there's for them, like you almost know what to, it's good to be there so that they can, if they want to talk to you about it, or if someone from the team wants to talk to you about it, though, I guess they could schedule one-on-ones at that point. So there's, I wouldn't have a perfect solution. It's just, I see what's been lost, but I also see some stuff that maybe has potentially been gained here with the way it's currently set up. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that there's a chance, maybe there's an increase in empathy with the way the league is covered after all of this though? Because you mentioned sort of at the beginning of what we've been talking about now, having to watch the, you know, speaking of feeling intrusive, but like watching these players go through these moments of trauma, just, I couldn't imagine having to process that or grieve um, so publicly, you would hope that it helps people understand and at least, at the very least, approach topics with more caveats where you talk about the transactional nature of the league. Um, I do as part of my job and I do enjoy trade deadline season, but I've gotten into more of the, I preface everything with these are players' lives. When we're talking about hypothetical trades, they're going to be moved around and it's important that we consider that and then move, move into what I'm actually writing about. But I also don't feel like that's enough. And so I'm wondering if there's like, something that you know media can do or if you feel like there's a better approach to how to cover this league so that that level of empathy isn't just lost because there's the in-person aspect of it like you said reading the room but there was also just a lack of empathy in general before this yeah there definitely is it's like one of the things i hate the most about uh like the industry that i've chosen to be in but um and is the most frustrating to see i think like you know it depends who you read i guess and like who you follow I think it's slowly changing. I really do feel that. I think if anything, like one of the silver linings of this season is going to be that sort of shift because it humanized players because they were in some cases going through what the rest of us were. I know some people will be like, well, no, they're millionaires, but it's like, eh, like this was kind of the great leveler, right? Like it could, you know, COVID could happen to anyone. And like a lot of them lost family members, like look at Carl Anthony Towns. Like I- That is one of the reasons why I was just like shocked at the callousness of the way that the league kind of conducted itself this, this season. When you like, how did it, how did it just like compartmentalize him? You know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. away from the way that it was handling itself and the business of basketball this season, that was really mind blowing to me. So I guess that's a bad, don't do that. That's a bad example. That's a good example of what not to do. Um, I mean, the trade deadline is a good example. Pre-agency assets, like when players are treated like assets and it's like salary matching versus like 
this is going to impact this player's life for the rest of their life. I recently, like I did a uh, reported feature for Spinsters, Haley O'Shaughnessy and Jordan Lincoln's new podcast. I hope it's okay to plug another podcast on your podcast. It's definitely, <laughs> especially when they are also <laughs> under the Blue Wire umbrella like we are. Oh, <laughs> yes. Wonderful. <laughs> um, <laughs> but in that, like, I wanted to report that story because I'm kind of like, we don't know what happens in the 24 to 72 or however many hours between a player finding out they got traded all the things that have to happen in their life to when they end up on the new team, whether that's from just like the logistics of moving themselves, moving their families, if they have families, what is it like to like learn entirely new schemes on the team that you're going to? And just like, do they ever mourn their life as they kind of viewed it to be go, like we all plan our lives to a certain degree, even though we know it's a dumb thing to do because anything could happen. Yeah. But if you physically live in a place, you usually plan your life around that and like what the next five years can look like. And like in a lot of cases with players, they don't really, they probably still do that. But what does it feel like to have that blown up kind of in an instant? You know, is it a bit like, yeah, like I just, like with Norman, Norman Powell is a good example because when he got traded to the Blazers, like in his first interview on court on the team, he just looked so lost and just like kind of just like bewildered, you know? And I think there is not enough sympathy given to players because the sense is like, well, you, you're, you, you're still employed and you still have a huge contract. So like, you know, quit whining or like you don't get to be upset about your life ending in a certain way. But like, that's just a lot of upset, especially this season. That's a lot of upset for players to deal with when maybe the one thing of consistency they had was the team that they were playing for, for however many years. So I guess I would just hope, like, I think what you said is a wonderful example, just like if you're writing about it to have like the caveat of like, yeah, these are people's lives. You know, they've been in this place for X amount of years. They'll move to this city, you know, and try and like, here's how they'll kind of fit into the team and maybe in more of like a dynamic way than just like, here's how their salary fits in with the overall cap, you know? Um, I think, I think it's just like anytime you can write about a player in it in, from your own human perspective and not just be like, Oh, they're a robot. And they do this kind of stuff on the floor. And I love to see, I would love to see them do that kind of stuff with this team. It's just like, there are human elements to their game too. If you just want to write about it from a specifically analytical standpoint, there are every player plays the way they do because they're kind of uniquely qualified to do that. Um, I think just writing, approaching it more from that angle. I don't know. For someone who does this a lot, I, get, I seem to have like not good, uh, tangible advice <laughs> for well, how to do it. <laughs> it's such a difficult, like almost incomprehensible issue to tackle because it's, you know, I understand that they're, they're well compensated for many reasons um, mm -hmm. because they're so good at what they do and that their skill set is um, so anomalous. They're also well compensated because I'm sure things like this do happen at the same time compensation is not you know it's not going to supplant feeling and uh you know for there are going to be and first of all listen to that spencer's podcast uh you brought up like the some of the more extreme examples where it's like um i can't remember his name now it wasn't eaton thomas was it or he was talking to his gm yeah and that was minutes later and then was yeah. just traded uh and so there there are instances like that where it's more extreme but even someone like norman powell or kyle lowry where they knew something could happen or maybe it was going to happen because i i do Nowadays, I think players are, um, if they're good, um, they're more informed than we probably give them credit for, but that doesn't make it the transition any easier because you still might not know where you're going. Like Norman Powell probably had, probably had an idea he could be traded. Maybe he knew it was mm -hmm. like a 75 to 90% chance, 
probably didn't know it was Portland. That was something that caught everybody off guard. So it's, it's important to remember stuff like that. And the other thing that's, and I'm not, this is just how it's impacted me. And I still feel like I'm part of the problem with the way that the league is covered. So I want to make that clear. But two of the things that stood out were that I think there's a shift of is the Jamal Murray interview um, after he had that was the incredible performance was against the jazz. Everything's blurring together, but his interview, you know, was being shared. It went viral, but I saw more people commenting like, how is someone who is in his early twenties processing this in public? Like this is unfair. And so it was like, complimenting and still sharing it but acknowledging this this dude is processing trauma publicly nationally Mm -hmm. and then the paul george stuff i do think in some instances like he deserves the meme ability that he's earned but when stuff was happening in the bubble or even with montrez harrell and the clippers were imploding it was like okay well you know trez lost his grandma and paul george was you know acknowledged that he was going through just some mental anxiety and i think for people who've probably experienced those same feelings, particularly during the pandemic, I think it made them stop and think twice about maybe some of the jokes that they were about to make or the way it was being presented. And there was still the toxic nature of stuff out there. And even I myself at the beginning of the pandemic was one of the flashbulb moments. I ended up deleting a tweet that I got called out for because it was just, like I said, I'm still part of the problem. And I do feel like though there's a shift just based on the way that, yes, things are still being shared. And part of that feels, you know, the the Jamal Murray interview, even watching that, if I, I can't go back and watch it now, I feel gross. But the fact that the discourse, at least around it, seems to have shifted a little bit, I do think is important. And I'm not saying it's great that we've gone through the social justice issues or the, the pandemic itself, but maybe it can at least help the way that these players are, are covered and give them that humanity that you've done, not just in this series, but just you do such a good job of covering in general, like in your, you know, your newsletter and then the series and a lot of the stuff that you have written. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, but I like I I agree. I think there were a lot of opportunities for us all to be like, ooh, we have been handling this really improperly. Because I think with players, like you look at them, you're like, yeah, well, a lot of them have had like media training since they were in college in some cases, or even high school in other cases. So it's like they're used to this. But it's like, does anyone ever really get used to, like, you know, having the microscopic lens kind of put on you, especially in moments that are just like so loaded, like what happened with Jamal Murray, like, and Paul George speaking out after that, after the fact, it's like, yeah, there was probably a lot of pressure that he didn't feel like he even could admit to having like anxiety in the bubble. Cause people would probably be like, dude, you're in this million dollar bubble for your safety. And so you can do your job, like quit complaining. Like you're at Disney world, you know what I mean? Like, but like, it just doesn't hold any weight to me. Cause it's like that particularly like was one of the most, I can't think unless you're, they're playing on like the moon. I can't think of a more just like uniquely artificial experience that was the sole purpose of it was for like normalcy for us, the viewer to be like, things are fine. We can continue. Like we just have to do it in the, in like the world's most artificial, like, you know, place on earth basically like that to me kind of like was a summation of the whole experience of like watching basketball in COVID but I think like to just probably you have a you have a great example of it is just like if you think if you are like second guessing something or if you're gonna write something or like tweet something or even say something and there's like a part in your gut that's like eh, that's like a slight hesitation I think just like listen to that hesitation And like, I know this is oversimplification and people have said this to me before, but I always just think about it as like, what if you just were doing this kind of shit at your own job? 
Like, what if you were just doing your job one day and someone came in and was like, you suck. You're not deserving of this salary. Like, because of the way you like made this photocopy or like replied to this email, like slower than you should have, you know, like you're washed. I just think like, yeah, their jobs aren't like our jobs. I get that. But to a degree, like they're also just trying, they're just trying to to do what they're employed for most of the time. And there's like a lot more pressure on them, even like, not just like, like psychologically, but like physically, there is no other job. That's like you, you and I can go do our jobs and like be in our pajamas, just like treat our bodies like trash, you know? And like, we could still get it done, but like, they can't do that. They are like forfeiting their like several years of their career if they do that. So there's a lot of pressure there. And I think money like you can get paid all the money in the world to do something and it won't alleviate that kind of pressure. I've seen, I feel like when media members get defensive, they talk about like what things are said to them on Twitter or in the comment section. And as someone who has a very frail ego, um, the scale and scope is just so different. Like this is, they can, if players were ever to search their names on Twitter, uh, it's 24, seven, 365 with the criticism. It's not just off of one performance that they had, or in writer's case, one thing that they wrote, like the scale and scope is just so much different. So that doesn't hold weight. And there should also, this should never have been an issue. It should be easy to separate, you know, mocking players who were maybe, you know, complaining about the menu at Disney versus someone who's saying like, yeah, I was depressed or like dealing with anxiety or processing the, the, the death of my grandmother. Like that, should, that stuff should not be able to, to demarcate to, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, I do. This is like sort of an abrupt shift, but I'd like to spend a couple minutes talking about the Toronto Raptors who are okay. <laughs> immediately fascinating, um, more so than before post-deadline, um, immediately, but long-term. Uh, what was your, you spoke about this on podcast, you, you wrote about it um, when you were talking about the, you wrote something for your newsletter about it being, it's just a business. <sighs> Impressions on what ended up happening with Kyle Lowry. Were you surprised that he ended up staying in Toronto? Did you expect that they weren't going to move him oh, in Tampa? Excuse me. That's not something we give enough consideration to either is that every game is a road game for the Raptors. Um, I was, I mean, like I, to be honest, I was kind of like in my heart, I was surprised from the perspective of the franchise. I suppose I wasn't cause I don't know what, actually I was surprised because I didn't understand like what the, the hopeful, the hope for return would be because I haven't understood this entire season. What, like ever since the honest sweepstakes kind of failed for Toronto, it hasn't been clear to me what the next plan is. And that's a, that's a novel thing under Masai Ujiri. Like I've always felt like there's several different plans. And even if the one that we thought was going to happen doesn't pan out, you're aware of like the two, the next two-year plan or the next five-year plan, all these kinds of things working in tandem. But like, aside from their relocation, this was the first season where I just haven't felt that sense of like, no, like, I don't feel like this team knows themselves in the same way. Um, Hopefully that is not too obtuse, but like, and I, so I felt like this idea of getting rid of Kyle Lowry, who was just like your franchise maker, essentially in this way, like so cruel, very unpoetic, you know, like this is how he has to say goodbye. He's not even in Toronto. He hasn't been in Toronto all season. And like, what's the hoped for return for him? I know they have to make this decision, I guess, like as, as a quote business, but um 
it was a bit jarring to me. Norman Powell made more sense. It was just a bit more heartbreaking because his entire career, he had been working towards trying to find some consistency on the roster. Well, his teammates all found that and like hit their strides and kind of like rose, you know, around him. Powell would still kind of have these fits and starts mostly in the postseason, never really consistently in the regular season. And he got that this year and then he got traded for it. So like, that was a bummer too. Like, and he was drafted by Toronto. These are just like cruel realities of basketball, but I get it. Granted, I think Powell ended up in a wonderful situation. He's exactly what the Blazers need and he'll do a wonderful job there. And I think he'll also like it personally, but yeah, I guess I, I, I wasn't surprised that he stayed because it just seemed like, what are you hoping for here? You know? And I think there's been some talk of like, well, how can you let him, like if he walks this off season and you don't get anything for him, like that's, you just let like three players walk for nothing, which will be factually true. But also like at this point, unless it's clear, like what the next few years are going to be for this team, I don't really care. Like I can't bring myself to care. If Kyle Lowry wants to leave this summer and sign some somewhere else, or that's one of the teams that was theoretically, like, you know, supposedly on the market for him, fine. He can do whatever he wants to do. <laughs> Yeah, the other thing that I was, and I think I follow, I won't say too many. I follow so many people on Raptors Twitter that I feel Raptors Twitter adjacent at this point. <laughs> I'm just so attached to the idea of Kyle Lowry playing in Toronto again. I kept saying on every podcast, every radio spot that he wasn't being moved. And then I'm seeing these notifications come in from Woj that today is going to be a transformative day for the Raptors organization. And I'm still saying the same shit because I'm just prepared to be wrong because I wasn't ready. I just didn't think they should move him. And mm-hmm. we don't know what the returns could have been. Uh, if you missed out on Tyrese Maxey and a late first round pick, plus whatever you might've gotten for Danny Green and Kyle Lowry leaves for nothing, my first response would be whatever. But I also don't think that this decision is made without the interest of keeping Kyle Lowry beyond this season, because, you know, I don't know what the Raptors are doing right now. It's, you know, they're, they're, they're injured. I don't know if you want to put that in quotes. Like, are they trying to do this subtle one-year tank? They're like still if they wanted to and they get healthy and I do think they've been hit, I don't like, I don't have the numbers for this, but it feels like they've been hit by just injuries and and the COVID stuff harder Mm -hmm. than a lot of other teams. Um, And then also being displaced from Toronto, um, their top four players, when you look at Ananobi, Siakam, um, Kyle Lowry, and Fleet, they've played in fewer than 20 games together this season, this team until uh, their loss against the the bulls shorthanded had a positive net rating. I still think they can be good. And if they want to fast track this thing to, yeah, if they want to chase a playing spot this season, I think they could get in. Um, if they want to just be good next season, this is, Hey, we'll have a good draft pick this year. And we will pay Kyle Lowry two years and $50 million or whatever it is, because we can still be good. Um, I think that's a path that they can realistically explore that I think was ignored when people were like, well, they have to move him. And I saw people were like, Oh, they made a mistake. by not trading him to the Lakers because they wanted um, Talon Horton Tucker. And I was like, I wouldn't have traded him to the Lakers if THT was actually on the table because you're getting Dennis Schroeder who you have to pay. And then I guess KCP is like kind of useful to you. Uh, but you just traded away Norman Powell. Maybe you think he's going to be more expensive. So I am in full support of then keeping him. And I, I think there's a higher chance of him returning than people are crediting right now. And the, the last thing I'll, well, the last thing I'll ask or throw at you on this is I also don't know what, um, how much Masai Ujiri's own contract situation might've impacted this. Um, but I don't think that he's like, oh, I don't care because I'm, my contract's not settled. So it doesn't matter what happens. I still think he, at least it's harder to discern where the Raptors are going. I do think part of that is uh, his own contract situation at this point. 
Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that's something that's like, I have maybe incrementally come to accept is like maybe the reason for the trepidation and the lack of clarity that it seemed like there's been this season is because he's sort of gently, gradually handing things over to Bobby Webster, perhaps. I could see him wanting to transition. Like, honestly, I don't see Masai. Masai can go to whatever team he wants to, but a part of me also sees him transitioning out of basketball uh, into something a little bit more like socially or like politically minded, honestly. Maybe not, that's not his next move, but I think that's like an eventual move for him. And with Kyle, like you can't, it, the franchise can't do what it did to DeMar DeRozan and then also like do the same thing to Kyle Lowry. So I do think like they gotta, I was very happy when Masai said, when someone asked him in, in like the, the presser after the deadline, like, well, aren't you biased about Kyle Lowry? And he was like, yeah, we're extremely biased about Kyle Lowry. <laughs> like, he's like, we're not trying to hide that, but like the valuation, valuation of players is such a like, it's just change. It's such a changeable thing. It just depends on like the, you know, the traits of the league, what's happening, like what teams could use certain players. Like it's not a static thing. It, like, so that's, I think what people didn't understand either when it's like, he's he, Kyle Lowry is either not worth that much or he's worth more. It's like the valuation is going to be different to every team at the table. Um, and I think strategically this summer, all those teams that wanted him could probably still use him because I don't think a lot's going to change no matter what happens in the, in the playoffs, I don't think a lot's going to change in the landscape of the league, but I mean, any team, I just feel like this team is not done. Like this Toronto team is not done, whether one, they're too good to tank. They're too competitive to tank. They're kind of hanging in this frustrating middle ground where like, I don't think they should get the play in spot because I think they should, they could use a break. Honestly, what is the point of like the playoffs? They're not a young team that like wants the reps. They don't want the, you know, like they've been there before. It's like, why get the play in if you're just going to get out in like the first round, maybe the second round, that seems exhausting to me, but they're yeah. very competitive. So they might do that. I think they should just like play to their full capacity to the end of the season. Whenever that naturally concludes, take some time off and like take tinker with offseason because every team's going to be doing that because yeah Toronto was hit specifically hard with injuries and COVID but there is not a team that's going to come out of this season unscathed in that way and that isn't going to need to regroup and reassess and like there will be a lot of moves made this summer I think so I think like Toronto fans can cool their jets a little bit on that <laughs> so do you think there's like a better than advertised chance that Kyle Lowry's back with the team next year and also yeah. the other part of this too is if he wasn't moved, it means that he clearly didn't ask her out. He might've been okay with going to Philly or Miami or LA, but if he's still in Toronto, it's because he didn't, or with Toronto, I got to stop the way I phrase that. If he's with Toronto, it's because he didn't ask to leave the Raptors. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think that's something that people kind of take for granted. It's like, it's funny, like we're in the player autonomy era, supposedly, you know, but like you got, we don't sometimes allow that to enter into the conversations of like, oh yeah, maybe he didn't move because he really wasn't putting pressure on them to move him ultimately in that situation yeah it's not his decision but he does have influence over it so yeah I think he would I think he would probably want to stay all he ever talks about is how much he loves watching Fred and Pascal and OG play and like their futures kind of unfold before him I think he would still really want to be a part of this team that he has essentially just built in his image uh, two more really quick questions, and I promise I will let you go. Uh, what have been your impressions of Gary Trent Jr. thus far? Oh, I love him. He's great. He's like a real 
he's just such a spark one he's like a spark in general but he is the spark i think toronto needed you know he's like such an energetic player i think he's very you know when you watch like the team play together for a really long time they all sort of like absorb the habits and the the like I don't know, just like the, even the ways that they move on court from one another. And Gary is just like a kind of whirling sprite. That's like a lot different than that. So I think, right. Like the timing was perfect. He this is need. I hope it's enough to kind of stir things up. I love how his friendship with OG is kind of developing. I think OG was really bummed. He didn't have a friend after search left. Like he didn't really have someone kind of in that capacity. Uh, and I, I feel like those two guys have a lot to talk about. His In his first presser, he was like, someone was like, how'd you find out? And he was like, oh, I was taking a nap. <laughs> and I was like, man, I love this guy. <laughs> uh, he seems like having really liked him in Portland and then mm-hmm. um, Tara Bowen Biggs, friend of the podcast, like turning me on to his like selfies, like his selfie game. Uh, he's, oh, yeah. Like, evidently enjoyable human being. <laughs> um, my final question for you is, so if this team is, I'm assuming wants to be on the faster track to getting back to where they were last season or their championship year. What's the the type of player or assuming that this current core with Kyle Lowry stays intact, what's the, what's the biggest thing that they're missing right now? A center, a usable center. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like such a traditional slander. No, no, this is the <laughs> thing. Boucher plays the best when he's freed up not to just be stuck at the five. Like he's so much fun when he can just like run around the court be a maniac, get tangled up in like all these ways that sometimes don't work out for him, but some like, you know, when it does, it's explosive. And without a center, like without Marcus Hall or Serge Ibaka, like in that position, his momentum has really been stifled this season because Baines is just like not comparable in that sense. And it's still baffling to me. Baines who has played on so many teams as like a mercenary style player can't rebound sometimes just can't catch just doesn't ever seem to know where to be so um you know i feel like i slander banes too much after especially after everything we just talked about being empathetic (laughs) (laughs) but it's been very frustrating to watch them i think yeah they need um, big they need a big whether that's like a stretch or like a versatile big that's like my dream you know like uh, bam out of bio is my dream it will never happen but i mean like someone like that would be the perfect player for Toronto. He doesn't provide much stretch, but the guy I've circled, and I do agree with you. And if you're going to be Chris Boucher, just if you want to contest jumpers as much as he he does, and I enjoy mm-hmm. watching it, like you can't be like the defensive anchor on center. Like you need someone who's mm-hmm. close to the basket. Uh, Rashawn Holmes is someone who's interesting if they can afford him this year. Um, Katie, this was great. Thank you for giving me so much of your time. Um, I will be putting the contact tracing links in our description, but are you able to tell our listeners where they can find you and your work? Yeah, you can uh, find me on Twitter at whatevs, W-T-E-V-S. I think I still have a pinned tweet to the first uh, story in that series just because it really sucked the life out of me for a few months. So I'm trying to juice them out as much as I can, um, but they're on Dime. So you can find them there. And then all the, it's a three-part, every piece has a link at the top to one of the other stories. Um, it was great. You should check it out and definitely subscribe to Basketball Feelings if you have not already. Uh, very enjoyable posts and you evoke so much emotion when you write, not just blowing smoke. You're easily one of my favorite writers. So thank you so much for giving me a bunch of your time and I'm sure I'll be pestering you again in the future. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. <laughs>